My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. Welcome to... War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon Meowser, and we are continuing at Chapter 5 of Under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment. Chapter 5. Fredericksburg Campaign. First official act of General Burnside to order reviews by various corps commanders. Rumor of coming battle at Fredericksburg, General Burnside's headquarters. Enemy strengthens fortifications on hills of Fredericksburg. Balloon service of Army of Potomac. Burnside reorganizes Army of Potomac into three grand divisions. General Hooker, promoted to command Grand Center Division. General Daniel Butterfield succeeds to command a 5th Corps. Failure of pontoons to arrive from Washington, D.C. Confederates strengthen fortifications daily. Heavy cannonading by both armies. Laying of pontoon bridges. Humphreys Division in reserve as forlorn hope. Incident of Uncle John Mackin. Humphrey's division on pontoons bombarded by enemy. Position of regiment opposite Mary's Heights. Humphrey's division as forlorn hope. Prepare to assault. Humphrey's division as forlorn hope prepares to assault. Colonel Allen commands regiment in the charge. Humphrey's division charges on Confederate position protected by Stonewall at foot of Heights. Charge made with bayonets only. Humphrey's division repulsed with loss of 1,700 men. Courage of Colonel Allen, commanding 155th. Regiment remains on battlefield nearly all night. Army cross Rappahannock to Old Camps. Captain Anschutz Company C and Color Sergeant Thomas E. Wiseman killed. Staff of Regimental Colors cut by canister shot. Color Corporal Thomas C. Lawson rescues and carries flag safely off the field. Longstreet's description of charge of Humphrey's division. Vandalism committed by non-combatants and camp followers. Sorrowful and distressing scenes in hospitals in town of Fredericksburg. Retreat of Burnside's army. Burnside's mud march. Casualties. The first official act of General Burnside on his advent to power, was to order reviews of his command by the various corps commanders on Sunday. On Sunday, November 16th, General Hooker, the new commander of the 5th Corps, conducted a grand review of the three divisions composing the 5th Army Corps. The next day, the army broke camp near Warrington, passing through the town, which seemed deserted by all the inhabitants except one or two indignant females well up in years, who scolded and denounced the Yankee troops, generally as they passed by. By slow and easy marches the next two days, the different corps reached positions, 
no concerted plan of action on these movements could be recognized unless it was the movements were intended to conceal from the enemy the real object of Burnside. On the 22nd of November, Humphrey's division was in camp six miles from Fredericksburg, on the north side of the Rappahannock, where rumors were first circulated that a battle would soon take place and an attempt be made to drive the enemy then occupying Fredericksburg and its adjacent heights from that locality. To the many of the troops in the ranks, what importance or significance, strategically or otherwise, there would be in the capture of Fredericksburg could not be understood any more than was General Halleck's strategy in persisting upon the retention of Harper's Ferry as important in the Antietam campaign. This thought was especially impressed upon the men of the Pennsylvania Reserves and other regiments of McDowell's Corps, which had, the previous spring, occupied quiet and peaceful possession of Fredericksburg. They had for several weeks held the town and the natural fortifications surrounding it, and, without being compelled to do so, had quietly evacuated the position, and it was now proposed to give the enemy battle to reoccupy the position. Finally, Humphrey's division marched to the village of Falmouth, a point on the hills bordering the Rappahannock, immediately opposite the town of Fredericksburg. There, General Burnside at once opened the headquarters of the army and settled down for some weeks to a period of inaction, although the enemy, divining his plans, had commenced to work on breastworks night and day with details of contraband labor, in plain view of Burnside's headquarters, strengthening the terraced hills and strong natural defensive positions surrounding the town of Fredericksburg and making the same practically impregnable. The balloon service of the Army of the Potomac here, being a corps organized by General Fitzjohn Porter in the Peninsula Campaign, attracted great attention. And the balloon made daily captive ascensions to discover the movements, the works, and the positions of the enemy. Preparing for the battle. General Burnside took this occasion of military inaction to reorganize the Army of the Potomac into three grand divisions. General Hooker was promoted to the command of the Center Grand Division, which led to the assignment of General Daniel Butterfield, a very popular officer, to the command of the Fifth Corps. While it was generally known that the objective point of the movements of the Army of the Potomac was Fredericksburg, it had also been known for a long time previous that the delay of the army in crossing to storm the heights was the non-arrival of the necessary pontoon trains from Washington City. General Burnside had sent written orders making requisition for pontoons, which went through the regular departments with a little celerity, as in piping times of peace, and week after week passed. However, and the pontoons from Washington, but 60 miles distant, failed to arrive. The red tape of the department at Washington was indifferent to the fact that the Confederates were strengthening their fortifications daily and bringing up reinforcements, and General Burnside, with an abundant staff and aides, preferred waiting on the circumlocution office in Washington to detailing an officer of his staff and sending him to the Engineer Corps in Washington, or to the War Department itself, to take the pontoon trains, which were stored in the War Department buildings in Washington, to the Army of the Potomac. At last, when the enemy seemed to have strengthened his last weak point, and to be at the very maximum of his strength, the long-delayed pontoons arrived. The commander-in-chief, General Burnside, unmindful of the greatly strengthened position of the enemy so materially added to during the long delay in the arrival of the pontoons, 
determined to accommodate the willing enemy by making direct attacks upon his strongest positions, and so the Battle of Fredericksburg was inaugurated. It is not within the scope of a regimental history to describe more than what fell under the observation of the members of the regiment, or at most, the division, and hence the orders and strategy and movements relating to other corps or divisions in that disastrous and ill-fated battle will not receive mention. The 155th Regiment remained in camp near Falmouth from November 22nd to December 11th, except three days in which the regiment was on picket. On Thanksgiving Day, a sermon was delivered by Colonel John B. Clark of the 123rd Pennsylvania Volunteers, which, it is needless to say, was an eloquent discourse coming from such a source. While encamped here, a new base of supplies was formed at Aquia Creek for the Army of the Potomac, and a military railroad 13 miles in length conveyed supplies to the Army on this position. On Thursday, December 10th, Humphrey's division received marching orders, and the regiment was aroused before daylight by the sound of heavy cannonading from Stafford Heights, where over 100 pieces of Federal artillery under General Hunt were posted. It was soon answered from the enemy's work back of Fredericksburg. The duel between the contending forces lasted for several hours during the day. The various columns of troops marched closer to the army headquarters of General Burnside so as to be ready to descend from the heights of Stafford to the banks of the Rappahannock, thence to cross the pontoons to Fredericksburg, which was still in the position of the enemy, and the south banks of the Rappahannock being lined with Confederate sharpshooters. Friday, December 12th, Humphrey's division was moved a short distance closer to the sound of the firing, which was kept up all day, and Professor Lowe's balloon, already mentioned as accompanying the army, was kept busy making ascensions and reporting to Burnside. This really seemed unnecessary because of the fact that Stafford Heights, occupied by the Federal artillery, afforded a magnificent view of the valley beneath on the opposite side of the Rappahannock, on the plateau of which the town of Fredericksburg is located. The positions of the artillery and the infantry of the enemy occupying the works could be plainly seen with the aid of military glasses. Crossing Pontoons Under Fire The laying of the pontoon boats opposite Fredericksburg, on which Humphrey's division and other troops were to cross directly opposite the town, was a most difficult and hazardous undertaking by reason of the Confederate sharpshooters and the regular troops lining the banks of the river and resisting every attempt to float the pontoons into shape for tying and bridging purposes. The fire of the enemy was so concentrated at first that the Union Engineer Corps in charge of the work were driven from their positions by the enemy and for a time it looked as if the laying of the pontoons at that point in question would have to be abandoned. The Engineer Corps, however, was reinforced by companies of volunteer infantry soldiers who jumped into boats and were rowed across by oarsmen while they fired in squads and got accurate range on the sharpshooters and the troops of the enemy occupying the Fredericksburg bank of the river. These boats, thus laden with soldiers and sharpshooters in large numbers, soon crossed and on landing, drove the enemy not only from the banks and hiding places, but also up through the streaks of Fredericksburg, which the enemy made no further serious attempt to hold. Under the protection, therefore, of the Union troops who had thus landed and occupied and forced the banks of the river and the town of Fredericksburg, two bridges of pontoons were quickly laid across the Rappahannock. 
to a street located about the center of town. No further resistance from the city or the shore being offered, the Union columns, corps after corps of Hooker's Grand Division, occupied the greater part of the day in crossing with the large supply and ammunition trains. The enemy, from the works back of Fredericksburg, sought to repulse the crossing on the pontoons by severely shelling the location occupied by the bridges. But their range being far from perfect, but few of the shells from the heavy cannonading struck either of the bridges or the soldiers occupying them. Humphrey's division, it was determined by General Burnside, should participate in the direct charges he had ordered against Mary's Heights, and should be the last command to make the assault in case the others should be repulsed. This was because the division was composed of fresh troops, and this was its first battle, also because of General Burnside's great confidence in Humphreys, its dashing general. The officers and men of this division alike, this being their baptism of fire, could be said for this battle at least to be eager for the fray. In fact, it can be truly doubted whether they were ever again as eager for the fray as they were upon this occasion. To hear the cannons roar nearly all day, to know of the repeated charges and repulses of Federal troops under Couch and Sumner and Hancock and Griffin and Sykes and Meagher, and to know that Humphrey's division was reserved to be the last to make the attack, and in fact to be the forlorn hope, as was communicated in a vigorous address delivered to the command by General Humphreys, made it indeed a very trying occasion, and a test of the soldierly qualities of the command. But undismayed and undaunted, the men touched elbows and determined to do their duty. Incident Before the Battle Whilst awaiting the final order to cross the pontoon, an incident occurred regarding a well-known Pittsburgher and his son, a soldier in the regiment which deserves mention. Uncle John Mackin was the esteemed citizen referred to. He had succeeded through Colonel Thomas A. Scott, Assistant Secretary of War, in securing a pass to visit his son, Corporal John Mackin, serving as color guard in the 155th Regiment. During this visit on the eve of battle, Colonel Allen, regimental commander, provided him with quarters and rations from his own mess. As the battle was imminent, Uncle Mackin's war spirit rose to the occasion, and he demanded of Colonel Allen a gun and permission to accompany the regiment in the forlorn hope assigned it on the occasion. The sight of rough box coffins piled up by the hundred at the freight station adjacent to Burnside's headquarters, being intended for the soldiers killed in the coming battle, had no disheartening effect upon citizen Mackin's intentions. He was not permitted, however, to accompany his son across the pontoon bridge to Fredericksburg, the most that could be conceded him was to allow him to remain on the north side bridge approach, where an occasional shell from the enemy's bombardment was lighting. There he received a farewell kiss and embrace from his beloved son, who left the marching ranks for that purpose, as the regiment was rapidly marching to cross the Rampahannock to engage in the Battle of Fredericksburg. The artillery and musketry fire of the morning, as stated, could be seen but dimly by the waiting troops of Humphrey's division by reason of the smoke and fog. But later in the afternoon, when the division was ordered to descend the ravine from Stafford Heights and cross the pontoons, the fog had disappeared, and the smoke did not obstruct the view. The enemy's artillery, however, which earlier in the day had very poor range, seemed to take advantage of the disappearance of the fog at this hour and as the division was getting into line and marching down the hillside 
to the pontoon approaches, the shells had better range, and occasionally struck and killed and wounded men, and also struck the caissons and batteries, crossing on the other pontoon bridge, which was also within the range of the enemy's artillery. In crossing the pontoons, the troops experienced a singular sensation. The fact that one's chances of being either killed on the bridge or drowned if wounded and knocked off the pontoons into the stream was far from consoling. Officers and men, however, recognized the dilemma and hurried across, not a halt occurring during the passage of the 155th Regiment. Once on the banks and in the town of Fredericksburg, the Union troops were comparatively safe from the range of the enemy's fire, and the Confederates manifesting no disposition at the time to shell or destroy the city which they could have easily have done. General Humphreys leads Forlorn Hope. With great celerity, General Humphreys conducted the advance of the division through the streets of Fredericksburg and up to the position opposite of Mary's Heights, where the great fighting of the fore part of the day had taken place. Couch's division, composed of the flower of the Army of the Potomac, veterans under Hancock, had already been repulsed in the charges against the stone wall at Mary's Heights. General Thomas Francis Meagher's celebrated Irish Brigade, the Forlorn Hope, on many previous campaigns, had also been repulsed with heavy losses after making gallant assaults. It was in the lull following these repulses that Humphrey's division arrived on the scene, and it is said that General Hooker, commander of the Grand Division observing the terrible repulses and slaughter, as he termed it, of the gallant commands in attempting to assault Mary's Heights, before giving the final order for Humphrey's division to make the final attack as a forlorn hope of the Army of the Potomac, rode back to General Burnside and invited his confirmation of the existing order for General Humphreys to attack the position with the bayonet. Burnside is said to have replied with great determination, Yes, those heights must be taken, and why should General Hooker ask such a question at this time? Because, replied General Hooker, I thought that in view of the terrible losses of Couch's division, Hancock's, Meagher's, and other brave commands in insulting the position, in assaulting the position, that the loss you had started out to accomplish had been attained, and that, therefore, the renewal of assaults by the magnificent division of General Humphreys would be unnecessary. Burnside then repeated the order, and Hooker rode away, and most reluctantly repeated it to Corps Commander General Butterfield who in turn delivered the order to General Humphreys. Colonel Allen, with that solicitude for his men which marked his whole service, made a detail of the very youngest and least sturdy-looking boys of the regiment to guard the knapsacks, which had been unslung and piled up just preparatory to the advance and charge on Mary's Heights. General Humphreys, who seemed ubiquitous in making his final preparations for the forlorn hope, soon after discovered half a dozen boys hanging around the piled-up knapsacks a short distance from the troops. And in his excitement, ignorant that the boys had been detailed there by Colonel Allen, indignantly and profanely ordered the knapsack guards to report at once to their companies, insinuating, most unjustly, that they were a lot of skulkers. Two of the boys, thus ordered to their companies, and less than half an hour later, were killed in the charge ordered. The knapsacks were never recovered, and it was just as well that General Humphreys dispersed the guards to their companies, for had they remained, they would undoubtedly have been captured by the enemy. 
At this date, probably the most accurate description of the participation of the regiment in the battle, up to which the reader had been led, is contained in the official report of General A. A. Humphreys, the division commander, and that of Acting Brigadier General Colonel P. H. Allabach, and also the report of Colonel E. J. Allen, commanding the regiment, which, being official and on the archives of the government at Washington, may be, re- may be relied upon as accurate and complete for the purpose of this history. The same is, therefore, appended as well being worthy of perusal. The preparations for the forlorn hope and the assault by General Humphrey's division, described in extracts of the official reports, it may be further stated, were extensive and thorough. Report of Brigadier General Andrew A. Humphreys, U.S. Army, Commanding 3rd Division, 5th Army Corps, at Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862. Headquarters, 3rd Division, Camp near Fredericksburg. December 16, 1862. General, I beg leave to submit the following brief report of the part taken in the action of the 13th at Fredericksburg by the division under my command. My division, about 4,500 strong, being massed about the Phillips House, received orders at 2.30 p.m. to cross the river and enter Fredericksburg, which being done, it occupied by your order in quick succession three different positions. 150 yards in advance of the position, my command was ordered to occupy was a heavy stone wall a mile in length, which was strengthened by a trench. This stone wall was at the foot of the heights in the rear of Fredericksburg, the crest of which, running 400 yards distant from the wall, was crowned with the enemy's batteries. The stone wall was heavily lined with the enemy's infantry. The second brigade, led by Colonel Allaback and myself, moved rapidly and gallantly up to General Couch's troops under the artillery and musketry fire of the enemy. As soon as I ascertained the nature of the enemy's position, I was satisfied that our fire could have but little effect upon him, and that the only mode of attacking him successfully was with the bayonet. The charge was then made, but the deadly fire of musketry and artillery broke it after an advance of fifty yards. Our loss in both brigades was heavy, exceeding one thousand including a number of officers of high rank. The greater part of the loss occurred during the brief time they were charging and retiring. The cool courage of Colonel E.J. Allen, 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, in bringing up his command to the charge and in conducting them from the field, fell particularly under my own observation, and I desire to bring his conduct to your notice. Report of Colonel Peter H. Allaback Commanding 2nd Brigade, 3rd Division, at Battle of Fredericksburg. Report of Colonel Peter H. Allaback, Commanding 2nd Brigade, 3rd Division, at Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862. Headquarters, 2nd Brigade, near Potomac Creek, Virginia. December 19, 1862. General, the charge was made and the line pressed forward to within twelve paces of the stone wall, under a galling fire of musketry and of grape and canister from a battery on the right. Too much praise cannot be given to Colonel E. J. Allen of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers for the fine style in which he conducted himself and maneuvered his regiment. Report of Colonel Edward J. Allen, 155th Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers. 
December 13, 1862. Marched across pontoon bridges. Crossed the Rappahannock about 2.30 p.m. Marched through the city. Crossed a canal and filed to the left. The brigade marching left in front. The 155th Regiment was in advance on the left. All the command marched over a plateau some 400 yards towards the enemy rifle pits and batteries. Halted within 50 yards of their first line, where they were covered by a stone wall, and for about an hour and a half replied to the fire of the enemy. Twice the regiment carried to charge their lines and to carry them by the bayonet. But owing to the heavy fire in front and an excess of enthusiasm in the rear, were compelled to fall back to their position. The regiment, by command of Brigadier General Humphreys, commanding division, was withdrawn with the entire brigade, about dark, and formed again on their first line under the slope. The regiment, receiving no orders to fall back into the city, remained until nearly daylight, when by order of Colonel Olibach, commanding brigade, it marched down into the city to renew their ammunition, and receiving enough to make up quota of sixty rounds, marched back again to the cover of the slope, and remained there until Sunday evening, the 14th, when they marched into the city, bivouacked in the streets that night and next day, and about an hour from the daybreak on the morning of the 16th, recrossed the Rappahannock, taking position in our old camp. Loss. Nine killed. Fifty-eight wounded. Captain Anschutz, Company C, and Colonel Sergeant Thomas Weissman killed, and entire color guard. Except Color Corporal Thomas C. Lawson were killed. Lieutenant E. E. Clapp, Company F, wounded and included in the above aggregate. Respectfully submitted, Edward J. Allen, Colonel 155th Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers. Color Sergeant and Color Guards Killed Amid the malignant, deadly storm of leaden hail that penetrated the flesh and splintered the bones of the men of the 155th, the flag was borne aloft by a color sergeant, Thomas Weissman, till a mortal wound caused it to fall from his nerveless grasp. As the brave color sergeant reeled backward, color corporal Charles Bardeen seized the colors and carried them forward, when he too received a death wound. The staff of the colors was cut in twain by a canister shot, but the silken folds of the flag, with fourteen perforations by many balls, had not yet touched the ground. When Color Corporal George W. Bratton raised them again, he too was laid low, and Color Corporal Thomas E. Lawson grasped the splintered staff and, keeping the flag unfurled, bore it through the bloody conflict and carried it safely off the field. Color Corporals Frank Thomas and John Rankin Jr., both of Company I, also fell mortally wounded. Private John F. Hunter of Company C., while serving as a personal and mounted orderly, and mounted orderly to General A. A. Humphreys, and delivering orders in this great charge, was badly wounded, having his short, having his horse shot under him, and being a sufferer confined to the hospital from his wounds for several years after his discharge from the service. There had been four files of Confederates beyond the parapet and the stone wall at Mary's Heights, which Humphreys was expected to carry. Although all previous assaults by the flower of the troops under the bravest commanders had been repulsed, to quote from a Confederate authority, the last assault, Humphreys, seemed to promise so much determination that an additional file of men was sent into the Confederate works. 
These extra men were loading muskets for the ones in front, and this made a continuous fire. The sharpshooters on the slope and in the trees, under all kinds of cover, had their own way, subject to no return fire. The charge of Humphrey's division was one of the grandest events of the war. It was nearly dusk when the regiment received orders to fall back, and Colonel Allen, being junior of the brigade, was complimented by General Humphreys by assigning him to the command of the remainder of the brigade on the battlefield, and under his command the 155th and the 123rd. Colonel Clark Commander withdrew from the field. It is quite certain that the very few Confederates were killed in this last assault. Their fire was incessant, and the sharpshooters supported the battle line by shooting at their leisure. The bullets from Humphrey's columns could be heard distinctly splattering against the stone wall. The loss in Humphrey's division reached 1,700 men killed and wounded in a charge occupying less than 10 minutes in execution. General Longstreet, in his published volume on the war, speaking of the assault of Humphrey's division, says, No troops could have displayed greater courage and resolution than was shown by those brought against Mary's Heights, but they miscalculated the wonderful strength of the line beyond the stone wall. The position held by Cobb surpassed the strength and resolution. A writer in the Confederate Veteran, a historical magazine for many years published at Nashville, Tennessee, states that in a communication from a courier who, during the battle, carried a message from General Lee to General Kersaw, commanding the defenses at the Stone Wall, occurs this passage. When we left the wall, the gallant Federals in five lines of battle were on the charge. I have since learned this was Humphrey's division of Hooker's reserves. They were allowed to come within fifty yards of our line. When our quintuple line rose up from behind the stone wall and delivered their withering fire, and the batteries on the hill vomited double charges of canister, the first line melted. But the second line came steadily on over the dead and dying of the former charges, to share the same fate, but still no halt. Its other lines came on. Ye gods, it is no longer a battle. It is a butchery. Confederates might have made a more impetuous charge, but for cool, persistent courage, there is no instance in the whole history of the war that surpasses this charge of Humphreys. With that high and terrible praise by that Confederate veteran, we will go ahead and wrap up our episode for today. I do apologize for the episode being out late this week. I ended up spending the last few days dealing with a medical issue. Those tend to get in the way. Uh, On to some quick notes about this episode. A lot of bitterness was written into the beginning of the Fredericksburg campaign monologue by the authors. The Confederate army did have a lot of time to strengthen their redoubts. So even though they talked about how they said they were going to avoid talking about the battle as a whole, you could tell they wrote it in a way that made their feelings known. Also moving on, the Forlorn Hope is the last effort of the Union army to accomplish something. So These are the people that you hold in reserve and that you order up when nobody else has been able to break through. General Hooker telling uh, General Burnside, you have killed quite enough of my men, thank you. Can you please not do it with General Humphrey's division as well? And still being told that he had to do it had me shaking my head. It is a same question and answer that you see throughout the war between different generals. And one that comes to mind is between General Longstreet and General Lee at the Battle of Gettysburg. And then, because it was so awful of the order that was attacked, General Longstreet had to do it with 
one of his own generals, who was like, please don't sacrifice us. He goes, order's an order. Sorry, man. It is a point of comfort to see that long after the war ended, soldiers were able to go back and see through the official histories and the letters. I've gotten to read a lot of similar accounts. For example, Leander Stilwell's novel, The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. He also does that. He goes back through the official records. And he's like, I want to see what they were doing and why. And even in that, he's like, I I don't know if I would have wanted to fight in the East. I don't think they knew what they were doing. The staff of their flag in the charge being cut in twain by canister shot. So what that means is they're, they take their cannons and they basically turn them into giant shotguns. They're essentially tin round kind of shells. And they're just basically packed with steel balls or iron balls or whatever they can get. And in this case, they're using double canister. And you basically take two of those charges in, and it turns the cannon into a ginormous shotgun used for when the enemy gets too close. That says something about how determined of a charge they made at that stone wall that they had to resort to that. Those are all the notes that I had. Next week, we will pick up what happens next right after they make the charge. Happy holidays to all of you. And for those that applies, like myself and my family, Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. He cried, give me water and just one little crumb. And my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven all in my faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded